welcome to the Yena podcast. This is number three, and we are recording this on the evening of the 8th of March, 2022. How's that for a bit of innovation? I'm telling telling the audience when we're actually recording. Wow. Yeah, so if you... If you- if you take a month to edit this, you're really going to be showing up, aren't you? <laughs> well, indeed, indeed. But that won't happen. I'm a, a quick and efficient person at editing. Anyway, yeah, so I'm, I'm Craig, and joining me today are my co-hosts, Mark. Hey. And Roman. Hello, hello. Yeah, so the the, the newsletter, uh, I did last weekend's newsletter, and um, it was a bit of a bumper issue, I guess, Um the, the big thing for me that I talked about was the ending of the protest or the protest finale. So uh, I'm sure everybody knows what we're talking about. The protest was the anti-mandate protest at the Parliament grounds in Wellington, which had uh, gone on for something like 23 days. About 22 um, days too long, right? Yeah, well, indeed, indeed. So, of course, of course, people have the right to protest, but uh, actually camping out in in Parliament grounds uh, and preventing other people from walking through there, uh, to me at least, seems like it was uh, going way, way too far. So, uh, yeah, we call them the anti-mandate protests, but in fact, really, uh, they were anything but anti-mandate or or that was a very small part of it. Yeah, everything and anti-mandate, a grab bag of all sorts of weird and wonderful ideas and demands. Uh, so it came to a rather abrupt end. Um, I know that when I wrote my previous newsletter, I was sort of a little bit criticising of the the police commissioner that they weren't really taking much action and they were talking about de-escalation and and I didn't really think that that was going to work. Um, so so to uh, a week and a half on their de-escalation, it would appear hadn't kind of really worked and the protesters were escalating things themselves by um, basically installing plumbing. They they installed a a shower block uh, and plumbed it in. Yeah, well, they they got some toilet blocks and and plumbed those in, and the waste was actually going to the stormwater rather than the sewer, as far as I understand, um, which is is not not the right thing to do. Um, no, and those so, were I I don't know whether you saw, but that was I think a, a guy that runs a company that specialises in making portable buildings in the South Island. So um, yeah. he'd bash those together via his staff pretty quickly and had them shipped up. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was impressive to see that they'd done that so quickly, but also disappointing, as you say. It kind of really made it appear that they were bedding in for the long haul when they started doing mm. that. So it was uh, pretty much chaos last Tuesday. Was it Tuesday or was it Wednesday? Well, it was Wednesday. It was a Wednesday. Yeah, it'll be a Wednesday. It was a Wednesday. Then. Right. Yeah, we yes. had we had our we had our unofficial viewing party um by going on Messenger and then pretty much trying to Skype all the different streams that were available. But I think eventually uh Chantal Baker's was the most popular one amongst the three of us, as well as a uh, maybe mana a little bit earlier later on in the day, I should say. Yes, I yes, spent so- quite a bit of that day watching uh, Chantal Baker's live stream. Mm. And I guess it was kind of entertaining, really. Well, entertaining, I'm not sure whether that's the right word, but it it was informative in terms of just sort of seeing her reaction to what was going on. And in addition to that, 
her reaction to the way some of the protesters are actually behaving when they when they actually clashed with the police. That reaction was pretty much one of no true Scotsman, right? That uh, no true protester would throw bricks at the police. No true protester would burn down tents. This must be police plants or this must be Antifa were the two main things she came out with. That Disappointing to see, but not overly surprising that she'd uh, stoop to that level. Yeah. It's also been pretty good to see that, you know, other media outlets like Spinoff have really called her out on that, you know, in terms of her, the misinformation that sort of came out of that podcast, particularly about was it the police? Was it the police who um, tipped over the generators, which was the most common um, accusation that was thrown that day about how those fires first started? Yeah. And so analysis after the fact showed that the police were actually well away from those tents when the when the fire started. They were apparently about five metres away from the, the tent. So in reality, they, they couldn't have started the fire because they weren't there at that point. And whether the fire was started accidentally or whether it was started deliberately, I guess we might never know. But I know that uh, once the fires started, the protesters basically tried to continue those fires. I, I saw people were throwing materials onto the fire in order to keep it burning. Shockingly, some people were throwing uh, LPG bottles onto the fire, which which had which uh, would have been quite uh, dangerous had they exploded. Yeah, just um, going back to who started the fire or how it started, I'm pretty sure it was deliberate. The footage that I've seen from at least one angle definitely shows um, a guy with a mask and a pair of white sunglasses hood pulled up going into a tent. Um, and I think there's footage from a couple of minutes prior that shows him with a petrol can in his hands, but he goes into this tent and he comes out and about 20, 30 seconds later, smoke starts coming out of the tent. Uh, and at that point, him and others are the ones that are kind of trying to pile more tents on top of it. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident that it was a deliberate act by one of the protesters, the first fire. Yeah, I think mm. I saw the same video as you, Mark, and it looked like it was, you know, one guy went in first and then he was followed by an accomplice soon after. And I'm saying he, but it could actually, you know, we don't know the gender of the, the two fire starters. Sure. And I certainly saw somebody transferring a fire from one tent to another. Yes. <laughs> so that so somebody be, just, you know, using their Kiwi ingenuity and got a little <laughs> stick and took a little bit of uh, flammable materials and tossed it on somewhere else. Real yes. number eight wire solution for uh, kicking <laughs> off a riot. So the um, the protest is over. Um, it certainly didn't end the way that the protesters wanted. They actually had no uh, official communication with the government, although uh, some opposition party uh, people did go and talk to them. So there was... Uh, David Seymour from the ACT Party went and talked to them. And then there was Winston Peters, who is not officially an opposition party because his party isn't even in parliament anymore. But uh, uh, he he went and talked to them sans mask, which is uh, quite shocking, really. Yes, it certainly didn't end the way they wanted. They were all dispersed. But it seems that there is still a, an undercurrent of dissatisfaction with the way it all turned out. And from the social media accounts that I've been looking at, uh, certainly there are um, people like the, the leaders of Voices for Freedom are kind of smarting about uh, how it's all turned out. And, and I can't see that this is necessarily going to be the end of things. Well, we kind of... 
in, in well, sort of in the immediate aftermath, there was some movement of the protesters sort of into more of the more outer rim suburbs of Wellington. So we think about they've gone to Shelley Bay. They've mm-hmm. gone to they tried to um, establish themselves in Wainui Yamada at the Marai, but that was the community members put that off. Um, and I think they're also at one of the um, already occupied sites and they've been sort of given the firm word to uh, make sure they follow COVID rules if they're going to stick around. Mm. Yeah. So I believe they're still in Wainui. There's a campsite somewhere at the south end of Wainui and they're there. But there were lots of places they were trying to go. Just tonight, I popped in um, to Natitoa Domain, where I live in Pororua. That was one of the sites that and the day that the protest was being moved on, there was a message spreading saying, here's a safe place to go. Turns out when the first people turned up there, the police had uh, put concrete bollards down to stop them getting into this free camping area. And there was an active police presence there. And I drove in tonight. It's still there. It's open. You can drive in. But they have signs up at the moment saying no overnight camping. Um, and as I was driving out tonight, there was a police patrol driving in to check because a couple of people had um, driven uh, camper vans in there. So I think the police are doing a really good job of just actively protesting where these people are because they haven't all go- gone home. It seems like quite a few of them Ill- are still hanging around places. Well, that's yeah. not the same nationwide. I believe Auckland, they've been a little bit more successful at um, getting people to clear off from Auckland domain. Not yes. entirely sure what the situation is like in Christchurch, because I've been reading news articles that, you know, the people who are living around Cranmer Square are still pretty upset and, you know, actually starting to move away from their own homes because of the uh, protesters who have dug in. Oh, wow. And I, and I saw that uh, the Christchurch City Council sent a, a $24,000 bill to uh, Destiny Church for their, <laughs> their disruption yes. of, uh, of, of the uh, Cranmer Square for um, protests and having to run traffic management. Yeah, that's a nice one to see. I mean, Destiny Church is not like they're short of a, a few bobs, so I'm sure they'll uh, be able to pay it quite easily. But and, um, and they are an official organisation, so if they refuse to pay it, I'm sure that uh, they can take them to court or send in the debt collectors. Or well, they Oof. seem to maybe not have a mail PO box because apparently the uh, leader of the Christchurch branch has uh, not been receiving these so-called uh, notices. So <laughs> wait and see. What are Destiny Church's actual finances if they cannot afford a P.O. box? <laughs> Maybe they don't actually have much money because Brian Tavinke is taking it all and sticking it in his back pocket. <laughs> or, and they've lost their charity status, or at least some of their some of aspects of the church have lost their charity status. True. Yeah, they have a whole bunch of charities and uh, there's a history of Destiny being really bad at filling in their paperwork and being deregistered and then having to ask to be re-registered. And so I think three of their charity wings were deregistered recently for failure to uh, submit paperwork. Same old with them. It doesn't mean the whole church is not a charity anymore, which is really unfortunate. They certainly seem worthy of being deregistered. But I'm sure they'll be back. It's just an administrative oversight that they will correct, and, <laughs> and they'll be back. And the money was just resting in his account, yeah. Hmm. Father Ted, for anybody that uh, thinks they might recognise that reference. <laughs> uh, so just one more little thing on the, uh, on the protest. So um, last weekend, I think it was, um, so Melanie Reed from Newsroom did an investigative journalism piece, which... Uh, interviewed the leaders of Voices for Freedom as as the 
um, sort of one of the representative groups of the people down protesting at Parliament. If you haven't seen that, it's it's worth a look um, because it certainly is not investigative journalism because <laughs> it was basically just um, a promotional piece for Voices for Freedom and it didn't ask any uh, any critical questions of them really. So Melanie Reed has a has a bit of a track record in investigative journalism or, or not investigative journalism. <laughs> <laughs> so back in tw- 2004, um, the New Zealand Skeptics gave her the Bent Spoon Award for her role or for her interview on the 2020 program on TV3, where she investigated Jeanette Wilson, um, the alleged psychic medium, um, who at the time had a program called Dare to Believe. And um, Dare to Believe, uh, Jeanette Wilson has been dining out on for, for many years, I think. Melanie Reed investigated Jeanette Wilson at the time and came to the conclusion that she was genuine and she did have psychic powers. Uh, how? How can any journalist come to that conclusion with a fraud like a psychic? Oh, my goodness. Yes. So, yes, quite shocking, really. And so it was revealed on, on a Radio New Zealand interview on Sunday that uh, Melanie Reed does seem to be firmly in the anti-vax camp. Uh, so they interviewed a, a guy on Radio New Zealand who was concerned about people putting in stories of vaccine injury to a website and that these stories weren't being vetted very well. So he decided that he would make up some stories and submit them to this website and put in some stuff that was easily verified that was wrong. And what turned out from that is that he got contacted by Melanie Reid to do a story about vaccine injury. Oh. So here was Melanie Reed uh, chasing up people who supposedly have vaccine injuries uh, to sort of do some investigative journalism uh, of her own brand uh, and, and basically uh, shed doubt on the uh, safety of the vaccine. So it sounds like she already has the answer, which is that vaccines are bad. And now she's just mm. fishing for the evidence to uh, back up what she already knows. Hmm. Doesn't that sound does like it's seem... quite the right way round of doing it, does it? No, that does seem to be the case. So, um, yeah. Um, but if you if you want to have a listen to that uh, Radio New Zealand interview, it is actually really good. Yeah, so there was a few questions that uh, she should have asked to Voices for Freedom, such as uh, where they get all their funding from. Um, and I've actually been to the Voices for Freedom website and had a look there, and then their, in their FAQs, they actually state that they will be transparent with their funding and at least on an annual basis um, publish where they're getting their funding from. Well, they've been going for over two years and we've not seen any reports so far, so I, uh, I want to call bullshit on that. I can't say I'm surprised. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, and are they a registered charity, do we know? Well, they're a limited liability company. And the okay. three directors are the uh, uh, Claire Deeks and um, Alia Bland and uh, Libby Johnson. Uh, so. Ah, so yes, because if they're a registered charity, every year they'd have to have to put in a charity return, which includes at least an overview of finances. But as a limited liability company, we are not going to be able to see inside their finances and uh, see it um, unless they make it public, we're just not going to know what kind mm. of money they're dealing with. But certainly, as you said, you know, from everything they do, 
it's a sizable chunk of cash. Um, you know, they're, they're making good money. They're professional. They're putting up billboards everywhere. I was at the dentist yesterday with my daughter. There's a horrible Voices for Freedom billboard just out the window from the dentist. Um, yeah, they, they've done well um, at doing a bad thing, I guess. Yeah, so they've, yeah, they've put up all those billboards. They've printed all those signs. So they are obviously spending the money, at least some of the money that they're being given in order for, for to printing professional signs and, and billboards. And but they're also they're also selling merchandise. Um, there's plenty of t-shirts that uh, we we saw in evidence at the protest with their distinctive colours. So yeah, on on balance, who knows? Maybe they are making a bit of profit and putting it in their back pockets. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me. And they're all, as far as I understand, the uh, the three women that started Voices for Freedom are all DoTerra essential oil salespeople. Um, and I've had a history of going after DoTerra because they're independent agents or whatever they call their multi-level marketing people. They just go off script so often and make some fantastical claims about how their peppermint oil can cure cancer and stuff like that. And it's it's horrible to hear. And of course, skeptics don't believe it. But some people who are looking to buy these things will buy into the nonsense. And as far as I'm concerned, that's pretty dangerous. Hmm. I mean that is one of the the one of the worst aspects of multi-level marketing in that you've got all these people who can basically make up their own script make exaggerated claims that the multi-level marketing companies can then say well we don't tell people to say that yeah but but once you're sitting one on one with somebody you're trying to sell some some dodgy goods to um that that Certainly, you can make those sort of claims, and and uh, nobody is any the wiser. So it's not too surprising that three MLM mums have gone on to uh, create the, I think probably the biggest anti-vax organisation this country has ever seen. Mm. It's surprising they haven't structured it as a pyramid, and you have a downline <laughs> of uh, <laughs> anti-vaxxers that you make money off. <laughs> Maybe that's coming in version two point the only other thing I'd mention, which probably most people have seen, but uh, one person who was at the protest is uh, former TVNZ presenter Liz Gunn. And uh, so there's a video going around that is excerpts from an interview that she did on Counterspin. And it's quite clear that she has COVID, but she believes that uh, uh, something was sprayed on the crowd while uh, she was at the protest and uh, it's affected her immune system and uh, she's coughing and uh, has all the symptoms of COVID and is having trouble breathing, but it's not COVID. She has fallen a long way down the rabbit hole, hasn't she? Indeed. Indeed. (sighs) So, Mark, what do you want to talk about? I don't want to talk. I want to rant, if that's okay. (laughs) Rant away, Mark. Rant away. I want to rant about non-fungible tokens or NFTs. (laughs) (laughs) I could have guessed. I think for regular readers of the newsletter, this this won't be the first time you've uh, heard me go off on cryptocurrencies and the like. But um, the reason it's, it's on my mind at the moment is because we've actually had a local 
NFT incident, maybe. I'm not sure how to describe it, but there's been a, uh, a story that first broke at the beginning of the week on Tuesday last week. So uh, exactly a week ago, I watched a video from somebody I follow on YouTube that um, that does a lot of stuff on non-fungible tokens, which... Oh, can we do a quick primer? Let's see if we can do this. So cryptocurrencies, I'm sure people understand. You've uh, you've got a like a virtual currency that is distributed. So multiple people have a copy of every transaction that's gone on in something called a blockchain. Um, and NFTs are kind of an extension to this. So there's something else that can sit on this blockchain. They can kind of sit in this distributed database that people can all hold at home. Um, and it keeps a record of tokens these non-fungible tokens are like a um like a receipt to say you have ownership of something and this is used mostly for digital art so the idea is that if a digital artist can create a one-off art piece of course anybody can make a copy but to make it so that it's still valuable the artist can then create or mint an NFT, a receipt to say that although anybody might be able to have a copy, this one person has paid me and they kind of have the canonical version. You know, this is the ownership document that the art belongs to them. And like cryptocurrencies, these things can go up and down in price and can be traded, bought and sold, mainly using, again, using cryptocurrency to purchase them. Um, and as far as it's concerned in principle, it, it sounds all right. You know, if digital artists need to make money, this might be a way of doing it. But as with pretty much everything in cryptocurrency in practice, this is not the way it works. In practice, people make sets of thousands of NFTs using cheap software just to generate lots of very similar images in a set and then sell them at vastly inflated prices with the idea that the people that buy it are going to hope that the price goes up and they'll be able to sell it for even more than they bought it for. And a lot of these images, they're just ugly. They are butt ugly, horrible, garish pieces of, I don't even want to call them art. Uh, and they can go, the ones that are valued well by the community can go for like $100,000 a piece. Um, and it's horrible. Um, but sure, yet, no surely, matter how often... Surely, surely Matt. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> oh, no, not with these. I mean, there is no beauty to they be seen. They are objectively <laughs> ugly, are they? <laughs> Oh, I'm not even going to go there. No, I can't say they're objectively ugly. What I can say is from everything I've seen, people are not buying them for their artistic value. They're buying them to speculate on the price going up, and that is all that's going on. Um, and these things as well as not having any intrinsic value and as well as being but ugly, often what happens with these schemes to, to sell a bunch of non-fungible tokens is that once they're sold, the pot of money that's been spent, which normally the artist will promise is going to be there to increase value, that they're going to use the money in order to make sure that the NFT keeps going up in price. Maybe you'll get free entry to an exclusive nightclub experience, or maybe you can go on someone's private yacht, or maybe they'll keep generating more NFTs for free that the more you own, the more you can get. Often, 
that doesn't happen. What happens instead is something called a rug pull where the artist just walks off with all the money. They basically pull it all out. There might be 20% goes to the technical guys that did the programming. 50% might go to the artist and then 30% to a few other people. But millions and millions of dollars in scams with NFTs are happening every week. And so having one that happened locally is really disappointing. Um, and this one, so when I found out about it last week, it's something called Called Pixelmon, and it's the idea of having like a Pokemon, but in a 3D pixelated game. So you can have a Pokemon character, and you can run around this 3D world with this character. Got a lot of people excited because a lot of people they grew up around Pokemon and they love these things. And a Dutch auction was run to sell about seven thousand of these NFTs, but you didn't know what you were getting. You just get an egg. Um, and eventually this egg would hatch, but you also didn't know who was running this thing. And this is another thing that often happens with NFTs is that the people running them are anonymous. So you have no idea whether there is a crack team of NFT experts or a 22-year-old that's just graduated from university that has two failed businesses to his name and no clue what he's doing. And this is the Kiwi one. The Kiwi guy, 20-year-old, really has no idea, has two businesses that have gone nowhere, customers that are asking him, where's my stuff? And this new project, this NFT project that he's now been involved with, he pulled in 70 million US dollars. This is a guy that's run two businesses that obviously has no idea what he's doing because they both failed. And he's made 105 million New Zealand dollars in the space of a few weeks, it is, I guess, in a way, I'd like to be able to make money like that. I'd probably feel guilty for the rest of my life about it. Um, but yes, the, the reason $105 million uh, assuages a lot of <laughs> guilt, Mac. <Okay. laughs> yes, maybe, maybe that much money could uh, help me get over my guilt. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the reason it made the news wasn't even this. It wasn't the fact that these things made this guy hundred million dollars, who at the time he was anonymous. It wasn't the fact that the price started dropping pretty much immediately. The reason it made the news is because after a few weeks, people were able to hatch their eggs. They were finally able to find out what art piece have I bought? What is my game character? And they were awful. They were some of the worst NFTs I have ever seen. <laughs> Just like the kind of thing my eight-year-old daughter would be able to create in a 3D paint program, uh, given a few hours. Um, and people have spent $10,000 a piece on these. And they were gutted. And they very quickly went on the internet as an angry mob, as they should do. And they very quickly found out who this guy was, who, as I said, is a Kiwi. Um, and yeah, so things things went fairly rapidly and it just doesn't look good, basically. Um, he's trying to make it seem like he's running a legitimate business. He's apologized for having made such awful looking art and he's going to spend more money making it better. But at the same time, he took a few million dollars out and bought himself some other NFTs as a security. He's been paying moderators for his Discord channel. So Discord is like a, an online chat place where uh, communities tend to build up. And I think he's got five staff members who for the past few months have been helping him look after after the chat as a part-time job, he paid them off. I think it was about $300,000 each for a few months work. And it's like, wow. this is not a legitimate business. Nobody deserves 300 grand for 
basically managing a chat channel. It's the whole thing just stinks to high heaven. So he's now trying to team up with various game development studios and, and other companies to try and make it look legitimate after the fact. But my, my reckoning is that the whole thing's just going to fall over. I think eventually he's going to realize that people are going to take, try and take money off him left, right, and center, and that he'll be better off just putting it in his pocket. Uh, and I think the big thing is that the people that bought into this, they're just going to lose their money. They are the victims, those 7,000 people, except for a select few. So one of the very worst of these NFTs, uh, it's like a green blob with weird hands and a jumper on, and I think a beret maybe, although it's hard to tell. He's been nicknamed Kevin, and he is so awful, he's become an internet meme, and the price of Kevin has gone up beyond the initial purchase price. So if you own a Kevin, you can actually make money out of this NFT. <laughs> I've just seen a picture of Kevin. He's yes, awful, okay. I will take back my <laughs> objections to your description of them as being but ugly before. Yeah. I do agree that it is objectively but ugly. <laughs> Maybe in the more legitimate art world, um, back in the beginning of February, there was a big auction by um, Webbs, which is an auction house in New Zealand, um, and they were auctioning off two photographs, or at least um, two glass plate negatives of New Zealand artist Charles F. Goldie. Um, there were pictures of him in a studio, and they would be accompanied by NF NFTs of each image. Now, the way it was advertised, there was the NFT that was um, prominent in the uh, promotional materials for this auction with the glass plates being the extra. And um, looking at the uh, news articles about it, those, those, those NFTs and um, glass plates sold for about $131,000. Um, the other part of that one that was interesting was they didn't just sell the glass plate with an NFT. They sold the two of them with a hammer as well. And the idea was that if you wanted to make your NFT the only version of that artwork left, you could use the hammer to smash the glass plate. And supposedly that was going to make the value of the NFT go up because now the glass plate didn't exist anymore. Uh, and that, to me, I mean, just it just seems like desecration of art, right? Yes. So I, th I think if you actually check into it, they didn't actually follow through with that plan. They didn't provide a glass ham uh, a hammer to smash the glass, but there was there was a proposal that they do that. Um, okay. So they in the end, they backed down on that. Um, but yes. And, and I, yeah, as a photographer myself, <laughs> I thought that was just absolutely awful that you would destroy the actual original um, in. And having a glass negative is there's something about them that it's just like it's it's not the same as a digitized version that you have uh, sitting in a file. It's um, yeah, yeah, it is really a piece of history. But on to the wider point of NFTs, we we had quite an interesting conversation among the committee today about this, and there were two things in that conversation that I brought up that I I think are quite interesting. Um, one of which is that NFTs seem to be a bubble, that it's um, so we have someone at our Wellington Skeptics in the pub, James, who talks about it being like tulip mania. And I had to look up tulip mania the first time he talked about it. And it was, I think, in the 1600s, uh, this Dutch craze of the price of tulip bulbs getting absolutely ridiculous to the point that one bulb of a certain type of tulip would sell for 16 hectares of land in cost. Um, and it was a 
bubble that lasted a few years and then it burst and a lot of people lost a lot of money. It was, it was a craze that was just ridiculous. And with NFTs, it's a similar kind of thing. This is a bubble where there is no product underpinning this. There is no intrinsic value. People are just pumping money in with the hope that they're going to get more money out eventually. And that kind of thing can only last so long. The, the inflation can only last a certain amount of time before people lose confidence and the bubble bursts and a lot of people end up losing their entire investment. And the other thing I brought up today, um, the one that I really like is the description of it as the greater fool theory. The idea that many of these inflationary bubbles, they will only work while you, having purchased one of these, can find a greater fool who will spend even more money than you to buy one. And again, that can only last so long until nobody's silly enough to spend, I was going to say like a million dollars on a picture of an ape, but that has happened. Some of these horrible ape pictures are going for a million dollars plus. So there will be a limit, but that limit is uh, it's getting pretty high. I, I honestly think it's only a matter of time before this whole thing comes crashing down. Indeed. And, the, and I mean, to, to be fair, I mean, most, most investments, there is some aspect to it of the greater fall theory. So if you look at the, the share market, you will find companies that are making a loss uh, and maybe, maybe have some long-term potential, but the price of their shares does not really reflect the value uh, in terms of, of because they're not paying any dividends. Um, it, the, the price of the shares is based upon people thinking that they're worth more and, and assuming that they're going to find somebody else who's going to be able to pay more for the shares than they did and then make a profit um, in that way. Um, so I guess, I guess many investments are, are like that in some, in some regard. It's just to, to what extent and at least with with shares, you do have a company underneath it that's in theory going to make some money, and, and it's based upon some some real thing in the world. Yes, I, I I get your point. I mean, I've always thought you know shares are backed by a company; they are a share in a company. And yes, there are. I think especially in tech companies, there are examples these days where shares are not sold based on what that company is outputting, but on the potential, the promise, the idea that the price is going to go up alone. And companies like Tesla and maybe to an extent Apple certainly seem to be like that. Uh, but I think at least you you still end up with this core thing. You still end up with a share in a company. And, and NFTs, there really is nothing. Nobody is actually interested in these psychedelically colored monkeys. Um, people are just interested in whether they're going to make money out of it. And that really is the whole uh, cryptocurrency thing too, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, the promise of cryptocurrency early on, you know, Satoshi's original dream was that this was going to be a way of avoiding bank bureaucracy and democratizing finances and quick, easy, online distributed payment system. And that is not what it is. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> as soon as it started going up in price, people went, oh, you mean I can buy Bitcoin and, and it goes up in price and I can sell it later and make a profit? And so people stopped even trying to make it useful to go down to your local grocery store and buy your shopping and the price just went through the roof. It, you know, it's become volatile and it's become a speculative tool. And part of the problem of that, as I'm sure many people have heard with Bitcoin, 
is that because they have this weird thing about proof of work, the idea of generating this nonce in order to uh, figure out a hash for security, the higher the price goes, the more electricity needs to be used trying to generate this nonce. And so Bitcoin these days is eating a ridiculous amount of electricity for every transaction that happens on the blockchain. It's It's got to a point where Satoshi, whoever he is, as he's, a, he's an anonymous person, um, if he's if he's dead, he's rolling in his grave. If he's alive, I'm sure he's weeping somewhere, because this is not what he imagined. Uh, it just seems to be a a bunch of people who are just trying to make money, trying to make a quick buck, basically, and and all scamming each other in various ways. Yes. So somebody mentioned today that um, El Salvador has now got uh, Bitcoin as an official currency. An official currency. That makes, that makes currency. me shudder. Makes me yes. shudder, really. I mean, uh, so if you get you get your your salary paid until you, uh, would you get it paid in Bitcoin? And 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 is that what's it going to be worth tomorrow? It could be worth <laughs> a ton more than it is today, or it could be worth a a, a whole lot less. So yeah, I. It, I- I don't know a huge amount about how it's gone, but it certainly feels like it's just posturing from the government. The fact that it's a currency rather than the currency, I think, you know, US dollar and whatever their national currency are both also legal tender. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, when it comes to a volatile currency, nobody wants to be paid in that who's living on the breadline. Maybe rich people might be willing to take a punt and gamble on a currency that might lose 90% of its value. But somebody who's on the poverty line, uh, they don't want their their money, their wage to suddenly lose half of what it's worth in one night. God. Exactly. Yeah. And, and another element of this, I mean, we saw this with the Spice NFT, in which we had that consortium that tried to buy the ownership of the Dune artwork book. Um, there's quite a poor knowledge amongst quite a few users about what ownership entails and the ethics of that. Um, going back to Charles Goldie and that NFT, Charles Goldie in New Zealand is well known for his portraits of Maori people. And, you know, within New Zealand, um, art culture and art history and art preservation, you know, we do have, there are quite a lot of rules and protocols regarding um, protection of Maori images and how they're used and how they're presented. I'm very certain that anyone who is not ingrained or embedded within that context and with that knowledge would just see those pictures that Goldie painted and think, oh yeah, great. I can make, I can max produce and sell them. And within Maori culture, that would actually be quite offensive, dangerous, spiritually dangerous. Mm. So with ownership of some art like that comes a lot of responsibility to, to treat it correctly, I guess. Well, let's hope that um, rather than smashing the plates and keeping the NFTs, that the two people that did buy these ended up doing the opposite. But there's a way of basically dumping NFTs by sending them to a dead wallet. Let's hope they scrapped the NFTs and, and kept the actual art. That, that's my hope. Uh, so I understand that, Mark, you and Bronwyn spoke to Colin Woodhouse uh, last night. I was not present. But uh, perhaps you can uh, introduce Colin and discuss how we're going to do this and put this into the podcast. Um, yes, we did. So, so Bronwyn organised this one. Um, so, do you want to tell us a little bit about Colin without, you know, ruining when he introduces himself? Oh well, I mean, I came across Colin through um, the New Zealand Rationalist and Humanist 
Association because they brought him into Wellington to talk in about 2019. And his sort of special interest is about expanding the chaplaincy and pastoral care services available in New Zealand hospitals to include non-religious services and Mm. And yes, one thing I wanted to talk about before we um, we go across to hear from Colin is whether religion is within the purview of skepticism. Do you have any thoughts on that, Craig? <laughs> Just going to throw you in the deep end here. <laughs> well, our, our official policy uh, as New Zealand skeptics is that if, if some religious organisation is making claims that can be tested uh, in the real world. So, for example, uh, that that evolution isn't true and that uh, the world is only a few thousand years old, then we can bring evidence to bear. And that is a, um, a valid line of criticism that the sceptics w- would take. But if you want to say that, well, I, I, I believe in God and I believe he's love and um, there's, there's really not very much that we can say about that. And you're quite entitled to your beliefs as long as you're not trying to force them on other people, I would think. So if you have an untestable God, you're all good. I think we can look at our past couple of podcast episodes. And when we talk about the, the conversion therapy bill, as well as what we're talking about with Destiny Church in relation to the amount of work and amount of contributions they made to the recent protests and anti-mandate and anti-vaccine, we can see quite a lot of interaction between the roles of skepticism and, you know, some religious groups within New Zealand. My interest in many ways in sort of bringing Colin into this podcast, um, I think quite a few skeptics also sort of double into the non-religious. And throughout our lifespan, we will be within these environments where we have to make decisions for ourselves or for our loved ones. And it's not always going to be about evidence-based. Sometimes it's just going to be about having something that's safe and appropriate for you and for your background and for your values. And for many skeptics, maybe talking to a Baptist minister is not aligned with their values. Maybe talking to a Catholic priest is not aligned with their values. Maybe being able to talk to somebody who is non-religious, who may share a belief or, you know, knowledge of evolution, that's more in line with their values. And I think this is it's part of the wider picture of secularism, which I think the vast majority of skeptics sign up to the idea that religion shouldn't have privilege within a society and certainly not within our society. Um, And things like religion in schools and prayer in parliament and all these topics, although they they seem to be more the bread and butter of the humanist groups that we have in this country. um, I I think it's absolutely fine for skeptics as and when they see that it's a good fit to uh, comment and criticize and uh, maybe maybe work towards a, a fairer country that doesn't give religion any kind of undue help. Um, yeah. So I, yeah. I think it's yes, it's the it's the unbalanced treatment of uh, religion versus uh, non-religious that that is definitely a problem. That we should definitely yeah. that we should address, and I, I don't think we're even asking. You know, when we talk about secularism for uh, for us to get special treatment as atheists, you know, obviously, like the religious groups, we think we have the one true answer. We think that naturalism, the idea that there is no spiritual element, is the 
is what's going on in the universe. But we're not saying that's all we want taught. We just want a level playing field. Um, yeah, there really should just be no privilege for religious groups in government. So I think what our plan was, um, our interview and our time with Colin ended up being quite lengthy, but it was so enriching. So what we're going to do with this podcast is play an excerpt, which Craig will choose um, to include with this podcast. But the pretty much the entire recording of our interview will also um, include as supplementary material to this. So you'll have double the podcast this week. Whoa, two episodes. Aren't they lucky? Yeah. I would point out the reason I'd get to do the choosing is because I've been put in the role of editor of the podcast, <laughs> despite the fact you, that when I signed up for this, I thought, well, I would share the duty with Mark. Yeah, you did. But then, you know, I've started another podcast and that other podcast, I'm the editor for that one. And I've not even done that job. So the chance of me editing this one is ridiculously slim at this point. I feel conned. <laughs> it was a bait and switch, but you fell for it. And I, I have no guilt, a little bit of guilt, but not much. Right. Very good. <laughs> well, thank you, Craig, for your hard work with the editing. You, oh, yes. You've done an amazing job. I'll, I'll get my reward in heaven. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, good luck with that one. <laughs> All right. Well, with that out of the way, we'll just play an excerpt from our interview and then we'll come back um, and have some closing remarks. You'll guess from my accent that I'm originally from uh, New Zealand. I arrived from the UK about 15 years ago. Um, I've been a registered nurse for approaching 22 years now. And most of my time, I've worked either in neurosurgery and neurology or in oncology. So we've had a lot of times where we've been giving people really bad news. And I just started looking at stuff principally because I have no recollection at all of ever feeling remotely religious. Um, prior to becoming a nurse, I was a geologist. And that means my background in terms of, you know, where did the earth and the universe come from is very much Big Bang and evolution rather than creation, Garden of Eden, everything happened in 4,000 years. If you've got somebody that's non-religious and they're having a spiritual crisis, which people do, because we quite often meet people that when they're asked, are you religious? They'll say, no, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. We then have this situation where they're in this rock and a hard place because they've got a choice between speaking to a religious person who has been trained very well to speak to the non-religious or to speak to nobody. You know, 100% of the chaplaincy staff and personnel are practicing Christians. As I just said, about 47, 48% of the population are non-religious, 37% are religious, um, oh, sorry, are practicing Christians. Well over 90% of the people that are accessing the chaplaincy service in the hospital are Christian. So it's a very biased service, in my opinion. So, uh, yes, that was a fantastic interview, now that I've actually <laughs> listened to it. 
Yeah, no, it was really good talking to Colin, actually. And um, I think whatever we can do to help him, you know, if, if there are ways that we can support him, um, I think it'll be really good. I know one of his plans eventually is to start training up uh, non-religious pastoral support workers. Um, and I wonder whether maybe some of our members would be interested, especially our retired members would be interested in taking on a role like that. So as and when there's a call for people to come and help, I think we'll we'll have to let all our members know and uh, and see if they're able to to give a hand. But before that happens, one of the things that we can do is actually take a look at the 2023 census. Um, Mark, the humanist, um, I think you're saying at the last census or a few years ago, had a particular campaign that's quite relevant. Uh, they did, yes. So at the last census, the humanists, um, they had a nice little pot of money from many years ago. I, Craig, you'll remember, Bronwyn, I'm not sure. I think you might have been oh. new to the country that yeah. years ago there was a campaign for it was the atheist bus campaign uh, started in the UK, but there was a local one that was run over here to run positive atheist messages on uh, advertising hoardings on buses. And it turns out in New Zealand that no bus company would take these atheist adverts because they were worried that religious people might vandalize the buses. <laughs> so. But it's so much the, more relevant to the census because how does the census? Oh yeah, so the, so the humanists ended up with this pot of money and they couldn't spend it on the bus campaign um, because buses wouldn't take the ad. So they ended up spending it at the last census on the no religion campaign. The idea that you should tick no religion on your census if you don't have a religious belief because a lot of people will tick something silly or they'll just tick something that historically was their religious belief you know i used to be church of england so that'll do um but we're really interested in seeing as many people as possible ticking no religion as a as a positive action to say that you no longer believe and uh yeah so if you're not if you're not ticking the right box please Please do that at the next census, which I think you said, Bromin, was 2023. Yeah. So, hmm. I mean, it means it means really, sorry, we're asking that you don't choose Jedi. You don't choose a perennial favorite of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. But surprising from the interview that we had with Colin, it also meant not choosing atheists, because if you're an atheist, you had a belief. We won't tell you which way to vote, but we're going to yeah. tell you what you must write on your census. <laughs> Yes, sure. <laughs> yeah, now you put it that way. That doesn't sound great at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's go to your hospital. Whenever you're in a hospital, ask for a non-religious chaplain and really frustrate everybody. That's what you can do. Now, I think a few years ago, maybe even before my time in The Skeptics, the New Zealand humanists had a tried to initiate an atheist bus campaign similar to what they had in the UK. Now, Mark, you were a bit more involved in that project. What was that like? Yeah. So at the time, it was a bit of a problem. I wasn't around when the campaign was first run, but it was run by the guy that's now the head of the humanists, Tim. Um, they raised, I think, about $20,000. But the problem they hit was that no bus would take an atheist advert that uh, buses were worried about what Christians might do to the buses. Uh, maybe they'd stop using the bus service. So the money ended up sitting there for a while. And recently at the last census, um, that money was used um, to run a campaign called 
uh, tick no religion, the idea that rather than ticking one of the silly options like the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, that people should just tick the no religion option in order to make sure that that one bar in the census graph grows as big as it can do. That sounds like a very good idea because uh, although it's, it's nice to, <laughs> I think you can joke around when you're filling in your census, these these uh, decisions actually do matter. And if um, organisations that use the results of the census can see that actually there is a big chunk of people who are in the non-religious category, then they really have to do something about that and uh, and and cater for for that particular part of the demographic. Sorry, I was going to say I, d- I did think beforehand that um, that the census was folding people with lots of weird and wonderful answers like Jedi into non-religious, but at least for the last census, I've just looked up the data and it looks like flying spaghetti monster and atheist are showing up as separate categories to no religion, which is interesting. (laughs) I cannot recall what I recorded on my last census as to whether I, uh, I put in something uh, that was uh, atheist or, um, or, or no religion. And, I, I probably would not have chosen the uh, flying speedy monster or um, or uh, the Jedi uh, religion. So, and another thing that Colin often has recommended is that when you are in a hospital situation, to request a non-religious pastor or a chaplain to provide that service and to be quite, you know, strong on that request. And Which is not not because you'll get one, right? But because the more people that ask, the more they'll realize that not offering that service is a problem. Exactly. Isn't that non-religious pastor an oxymoron? <laughs> no, according to uh, Colin. Really? So, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when you uh, while you're editing, you'll uh, hear his reasons why. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I will look forward to that. All right. Well, before we close out the podcast, we do still have a couple of membership corner issues, um, or I should say matters. First of all, we had some really great uptake of the skeptics in cyberspace last Friday. So we're going to do that again in about three weeks time. We also have the Wellington skeptics in the pub meeting coming up this Friday. Same bat time, same bat channel. And for those of you who don't know what that means, that's 6 p.m., at the lounge that's inside the Intercontinental Hotel on 2 Gray Street, and absolutely not the restaurant next door that's called 2 Gray. And then, Mark, there is a talk upcoming with the humanists in March? April. We're in March. Oh, April. Never mind. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so the next – so we had a really good humanist meeting last night. Um, we had, um, a couple of people talking about the protest and the drivers for the protest and how this protest was different. So it was Sue Bradford and Byron Clark, um, really, really good meeting next month's humanist meeting will be Colin Woodhouse. Um, he's organized to have someone from the UK come and talk. It'll be an online meeting. Do you remember what they're called, Bronwyn? Lindsay Van Dyke. She is actually yeah, one of the few salaried non-religious chaplains in the National Health Service in the UK. So it's actually a talk that's going to be quite relevant to what we're talking about here. But she comes from a very different position than Colin does. So if you want to learn more about non-religious pastoral care, um, it'll be the first Monday of April. It'll be on Zoom, so you can connect from anywhere in the country or indeed the world. And it's free to attend 
Um, and it'll be Wellington Skeptics in the Pub Meetup Group. So for those that know how to use meetup.com, if you look for Wellington Skeptics in the Pub, it will be the meeting will be posted in there, uh, and you'll be able to find, once you've RSVP'd, what the link is to connect into the meeting. All right, that was uh, a whole bunch of interesting stuff. I uh, hope that everybody enjoyed that. Uh, I certainly uh, learned a few little snippets from... Uh, from Mark's rant about NFTs, and uh, and I'm certainly looking forward to listening to Colin. So you have been listening to the Yena podcast. What else do I want to say here? That's it. I think goodbye. <laughs> yes. Okay. Bye. Uh, good luck. Good as, night. Yes, indeed. And um, if you've got any feedback, we would love to hear from you. We are on Twitter at Yena Pod, but you could also just send us an email. Uh, to news at skeptics.nz. And if you would like to leave us a review and a rating, uh, we accept only five-star ratings. Oh, I hate it when podcasts ask you to rate, like and subscribe. Do we have to do that to our poor listeners? We do, don't we? (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) Yeah, rating would be good, but we're not asking for a five-star. We're asking for whatever rating you think we deserve. Not a one. (laughs) <laughs> no, a one. If we're that bad, give us a one. That's absolutely fine. I mean, we're not that bad, but we understand if you think it. All right. <laughs> so thank you. We will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. See you later. Oh, wait, we are recording. Yes, we have. Re- <laughs> Don't say that. Oh, my goodness. That was <laughs> a I see hard. the button on my screen. It's like record. And it's oh, like... Yeah.